busted out serving the Lord. That's the first song I ever tried to sing in my life. My Uncle Thad Burrow, I mean, he, not, he didn't ask me. He insisted that I sing. And it kind of got me started out in the service of the Lord. I also remember Brother Guy, uh, Dr. Lee Robertson. Dr. Lee Robertson used to be a singer. He had prospects as an opera singer and uh, was singing at a wedding. And uh, the groom really got delayed. I mean, got caught in a traffic jam or something. And uh, they were waiting for him. I mean, everybody's waiting for the groom, and he hadn't, he hadn't showed up. And so they asked Dr. Robertson when he was just, uh, he wasn't even a doctor then, he said, uh, Lee, he said, uh, can you sing another song? Can you sing another song? And he said, the only song I remembered was, I come to the garden alone. And he said he sung that song. And uh, what a beautiful song it is, and how beautifully done. We appreciate that so very, very much. John chapter 3, verse 16. You don't even need to turn there. But I want to talk to you tonight for a few moments on the subject that I call from heaven with love. From heaven with love. I said this morning, uh, there's a movie produced by Hollywood a long time ago, I guess a long time ago. I don't go to the Hollywood theater. I don't like to give them any of that bunch of perverts any of my money. But yet again... Uh, they had a film out, a movie called From Russia with Love. But I will tell you, I'd rather have the love from heaven than the love from Russia, from America, the White House, or anywhere else. From heaven with love. John 3, verse 16, you know it by heart, and it simply says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Pray with me. Father, make this verse and this truth, though familiar to us, make it fresh, make it real to us, and may we realize, though how unlovely we are, that yet you loved us. Sinful though we be, yet you loved us. May we revel in the graciousness of the love of our God in these moments together, in Jesus' name. Amen. John 3, 16 begins where Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 begins. Genesis 1 and verse 1, uh, you'll recall, states simply, in the beginning, God. That is, in the beginning of creation, God. Here in John three sixteen, you have, in the beginning of redemption, God. In the beginning of redemption, God. Without God, there would be no creation. Without God, there would be and could be no redemption. God is the greatest word in human language. I don't know of any other word that's greater. The word God is measureless. How can you measure this person, this one whom we worship, that we call God? It is, that word is fathomless. You'll never, ever get to the depths of the meaning and, and the beauty of the word God. It has no height. It has no depth. It has no length. It has no breadth. You cannot get to the height, the depth, the length, nor the breadth of this word God. 
The word God, by the way, is a universal word. There is no nation, there is no tongue, there are no peoples on this earth who indeed do not believe in the existence of a supreme being. Now, they may not worship the true and living God that you and I worship, but all mankind somehow has a sense of a supreme being. The worship of that deity, whoever that deity may be, indeed controls and dominates the life of that community. Whether it be in Africa, whether it be in India, whether it be in the Middle East, Wherever mankind is, the worship of their deity, that one whom they call God, dominates the very life of the community. For God, someone said, and there you stop, for it staggers you. It is easier to climb Mount Everest than it is to climb to the height of the meaning of this word God. God, whoever climbed to the height of that word and that name, whoever, whoever came to the place of fullest understanding of the name of our God. Daniel Webster, whom you often refer to, I'm sure, in the dictionary, Daniel Webster said, and I quote his words, There has never been but one thought that staggered me, God. God. The sublimest word ever penned. Can you imagine? A man who penned for us the dictionary that I refer to so often, and yet he said that the greatest thought that ever staggered me was this word, God. So over this very word, God, volumes have been written. More theological debates have been over this name, God, than we could ever attempt to mention. Philosophers have endeavored to understand it. Intellectuals and scientists have battled and fought over this name God, but yet staring us in the face so clearly in this verse of the Scripture and throughout the Bible is this word and this personality that we know as God. For God. Now that's all I'm going to have time to deal with tonight in John 3.16. Just these two little words, for God. Let me suggest to you, for your thinking, that the term for God assumes his existence. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 does not try to prove the existence of God. There is no endeavor to prove that God exists. Neither is there any proof here that God exists. It is simply taken for granted, and the verse says, for God. Now, all of us know that the atheists say there is no God. No God, they say. And yet John 3.16 stands up in answer to their denial and says, for God. Atheists for the centuries have tried to bury God. Liberal theologians have tried to bury God. But John 3.16 stands up tall and strong and stalwart and just simply says, For God. Now God declares in Psalm 14 and verse 1 that a man is a fool who would seek to destroy and deny the very existence of God. A fool 
he is indeed because the fact of God is established by the very work of his hands. A man who looks around him in this world and in creation, if he is a sensible man, cannot help but conclude that there is an intelligent being who created all that we know in this world. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 tells us that the revelation of God was given, and I quote, by the things that were made. That is the first revelation of God. By the things that were made, that is the things that were, for, that were created. So from the beginning of creation, God could be known by that which he created. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20 also goes further to tell us that those who would deny this God and reject this God are without excuse. I mean, they'll stand without excuse, without alibi, when they stand before the God of creation. Dr. A.J. Gordon, one of my favorite writers of the Scripture, writes, and he said this, and I quote his words, No power or might of man can sweep the stars from the sky or blot the sun from the heaven or efface the splendor of the landscape. Certainly man may deny God, but he cannot do away with the handiwork of God. It is all about us and the universe, the world we live in, the things about us, our life itself, all speak of the very wonder of God. God that we find in the Bible is the God of the earth. I ask you this question. How could you account for the creation of this world and the universe apart from God? How could you do that? Only the person who in his heart would like to get away from God like a criminal wants to get away from a police officer. Uh, only the man would say in his heart, there is no God. Yet the man who is honest and full of integrity, when he looks all about him, discovers the truth of God and the existence of God. Dr. Werner von Braun who was one of the great missile experts in our country, came over here from Germany. Werner von Braun had this to say, All that I know and have discovered from the universe teaches me there is a God. Here's a scientist, an, astro an astronomer, who, uh, probed, who probed into the outer spaces of our world and yet has to say that all that I know and all that the universe teaches me is that there is a God. I like the poem written by Joyce Kilmer. Some of you may know this poem when I quote it. I'll quote just a part of it. Joyce Kilmer, Kilmer said, I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. A tree whose hunger, hungry mouth is pressed against the earth's sweet flowing breast. A tree that may in summer wear a nest of robins in its hair, upon whose bosom snow has lain, who intimately lives with rain. Poems are made by fools like me, but only God can make a tree. Think of that. How many of y'all memorized that when he was in school, huh? Sure you did. And certainly as you look about you in creation, you can't help but realize there is a God, a mastermind behind all that we know in creation. Another very well-known person wrote these words. 
Is there no God? The stream that silver flows, the air he breathes, the ground he treads, treads, the trees, the flower, the grass, the sands, each wind that blows, all speak of God. Throughout one voice agrees and eloquent his dread existence shows. Blind to thyself, ah, see him fool in these. A man cannot look at creation and come to any other conclusion that there was a mind behind everything that was created and that we have today. He is the God of the earth. Our God is the God of the sea. You realize that man has spent ages trying to discover and understand and interpret the mystery of the sea. And yet you open your Bible and you find words like this in Revelation 20 and verse number 6. An angel stands upon the sea and earth with lifted hand and that angel says this, And swear by him that liveth forever and ever who created heaven and the things therein are and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea, and the things that therein are. Our God is the God of the sea. When you go down to the coast, Christians don't go to the beach, they go to the coast. And when you go down to the coast, and you look at that vast body of water, realize this, that God created that. There's not a farmer in a drought-stricken country who can produce one drop of water. Not one. And yet God has created the sea. Psalm 95 verse 5 and 6 and the psalmist exalts and he says the sea is his and he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Oh come he says let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. And every time you get out in the morning and look at the trees, and the landscape, the sea, the sky, the universe above you at night, and often I go out, I go out and find the barn. Most of you know my studies in the barn. <laughs> the reason I come up with such country stuff, I guess. But I walk out of the back door of my barn, look up in the heavens. And I'm going to tell you something. When I look up there and I see all the stars, and I see God's universe, oh, listen, I feel about that high. Not even that high. Let me bring it down. I realize that there is a God whom I worship and know who is the master and the creator of all of these things. Over in the book of Acts chapter 4 and verse 24, after the disciples had been admonished by the leaders of the, of the day to never mention the name of Jesus anymore, and yet they had released them. And when they heard that, the disciples lifted up their voice to God with one accord. And they said, Lord, thou art God, which has made heaven and earth, and watch this, and sea and all that in them is. They realized God is the God, not only of earth, but he is the God of the sea. Dr. Joseph Parker, one of the great writers of times past, I have a whole section of volumes by Dr. Joseph Parker. Dr. Parker on one occasion was sailing the Atlantic to go to a series of meetings. And uh, as he was going across the Atlantic, they saw that he stood for hours at the railing of the ship, just looking down on the water, looking down on the water. A man intruded on Dr. Parker's meditations. 
And he said to Dr. Parker, Dr. Parker, what do you see in the water? And old Dr. Joseph Parker lifted his lion-like head and turned to the fellow and said, God, I see God. The sea, all that in this world is, there is a reminder to us every day that we live that there is our God who is mighty and powerful. But say, he is not only the God of the earth and the God of the sky, he is a God of the sea, he is the God of the sky. God of the sky. The heavens declare, the psalmist said, the glory of God. You ought to get out every once in a while. I used to as a boy just get on the hillside. I'm telling you the truth. I just lay down, just keep looking up, just look up. You see those, what we call falling stars? You see all the alignment of the stars and all of those different uh, formations? And I'm going to tell you, it did something to me. Uh, David said, when I behold the heavens, the stars that you've made, what is man? What am I that you are so mindful of me? You see, God spoke and worlds dropped from his lips. Just as when we speak, words drop from our lips. But when God said, let there be, there was. This almighty, this all-powerful God. I was interested this, this afternoon as I thought on these things to find the words of the famous astronomer, Dr. James, Sir James Jeans. And he wrote and he said this. Think of this. How staggering, how baffling this is. And he said... A few stars are known, which are hardly bigger than the earth. But the majority are so large that hundreds of thousands of earths could be packed inside each and leave room for space. Here and there we come upon a giant star, he said, large enough, think of this, to contain millions and millions of earths. And the total number of stars in the universe is something like the total number of grains of sand on all the seashores of the world. Boy, don't that bring you down to size. I mean, we think this world is the center of everything. And yet our little world could be put in stars, the millions upon millions of earths our size placed into those stars that are so gigantic. So I'm telling you, my friend, our God is the God of the sky. I remind you something as well, that there cannot be a here without a there. There cannot be a before without an after. There cannot be an upper without a lower. And there cannot be a creation without a creator. This very universe, as you look at it, is steeped in thought. And if there is thought, there must be a thinker somewhere. If there is an action, that action demands an actor. If there is knowledge, there must be a being who knows. And that's the reason this great verse, this heart, uh, this heart verse, and here we are near in Valentine, you talk about a heart verse. It begins with the thought of God. Now the Bible said the fool denies God, but he does it in his heart. 
The fool does not have a head problem. He has a heart problem. What he is saying is there is no God and I wish that were so. Man does not, if he admits and acknowledges and confronts the truth that there is a God, he knows that someday, somewhere, somehow, he is going to face that very God. And so then there is this great God of ours for God asserting to us his great power. Not only that, but the words for God attest his personality. They speak to us of a person, not some uh, uh, inanimate being. God is a personal being. Let me, listen to me carefully. He is not a force. Contrary to what some of you folks watching television, these new movies coming out, God is not a force. God is not an influence. I ask you this question. How could a force or an influence love? It takes a person to love. And the Bible reveals to us that God is love. God is not, as some call him, the cosmic flux. God is not social consciousness. God is not the soul of the universe. God is not nature. Though there are a lot of folks who would like to say nature is God. My friend, that is not what the Bible teaches. A certain radio personality said not long ago, we believe in God, and I'm quoting his words, we believe in God just as much as any generation ever believed in God. But we have changed the meaning of the word. He said, God for us is nature. And then he quoted that little poem that you may have heard. Some call it autumn, others call it God. Some call it evolution, others call it God. Some call it nature, others call it God. That's the thinking of a modern generation. You remember the story of Abe Lincoln that he used to tell so frequently it is said? He used to say to an audience, that dog over there, if you were to call his tail a leg, how many legs would he have? And often the people respond and say, well, he'd have five legs. And Lincoln would say, oh, no, my friend, call his tail what you will, but he only has four legs. And the truth is the world of nature lovers and tree huggers and Al Gores and all of the rest may hug their trees and call God nature, but I'm here to tell you, you cannot change the fact that God is God. God is an intelligent being. He is living. He is capable of thinking. He is capable of speaking. He is capable of acting. God is capable of deciding. He is capable of loving. God is a personal being. There are only two kinds of personalities, by the way, in the world. Created and uncreated. Angels and humans are uncreated beings. God is uncreated. What did I say? Angels and, and men are created. Pardon me. I'm glad y'all corrected me. Uh, nod your head or shake your head. One, my wife usually does that or she'll say this. But anyway, uh, angels and humans are created. God 
is an uncreated being. I used to ask my mother when I was a boy. I'd say, Mama, where'd God come from? And Mama would say, Son, God didn't come from anywhere. You came from Him. God has always been for God. And so He is an uncreated personality. God has always been. It's impossible, I'll tell you this, for infinite or for finite personality to ever understand infinite personality. It's impossible for finite personality like me and you to understand infinite personality. We don't have that capability. We don't have that kind of understanding. Why? We are limited in intellect. Whether you want to admit that or not, you are. We are limited in power. Not only that, we are limited in love. But God is unlimited in all of these areas. He is unlimited in intellect. He is unlimited in power. He is unlimited in love. And so that you and I, human beings, could understand him, he became God incarnate. He came down to reveal something of himself to us through the person of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Not only that, but let me say a third thing. This term and expression, for God, asserts his love. That's what John 3.16 is all about. It is the heart of the Bible. And God is expressing to us that he loves us, that he cares for us. For God so loved the world. This whole verse is literally permeated with love. For example, for God, the term gives the source of love. That's where it comes from. He so loved, that gives to us the fact of love, that God does love us. The world gives the object of his love. For God so loved the world that he gave. That explains and gives to us the act of love. Love gives. I saw in front of a Negro church down in Mississippi many years ago, and you may have heard this expression, and the little billboard outside said, you may give without loving, but you can't love without giving. Indeed, God, because he loved, gave, that he gave. That's the act of love. And then he said, gave what? His only begotten son. That's the, that's the very gift of his love. He gave the best of heaven. And oh, how we ought to be shamed in our own heart when we give so little to him. We don't give our best. We don't give our best hours, our best time, our best talent, our best. Oh, how shameful it is that after God gave his best, we give so little to him. And then he said that whosoever believeth on him, that's the message of love. And finally he said that we should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the fruit of love. All of this. What a marvelous verse is John 3, 16. And we just quote it over and we read it over and we ignore it so very often. So God so loved simply. Why? Why did God love us? Because we were lovable? No. But because he is love. That's the greatness of it all. I suppose the greatest words ever written are these words in 1 John 4, verse 8 and verse 16. God is love. God is love. 
the scriptures, this is the scripture's greatest definition of God. God is love. One of the great theological uh, and biblical, I suppose we could say, uh, catechisms ever given was the Westminster Catechism. The Westminster Catechism said this in part, God is spirit, infinite, unchangeable, eternal in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Have you ever read that? I want to ask you this. There's one thing strangely missing, and that is God's love. And the Bible defines God as love. God is love. I think that's the greatest theological definition ever given to us of God. But the amazing thing is that in one of the greatest catechisms and confessions of faith ever given, as far as man is concerned, in that Westminster confession of faith, our catechism, love is left out altogether. And yet the Bible's central truth, the heartbeat of the Bible, is that God loves you and God loves me. Certainly words could no more define love than they could define God. Can you define God? Can you define love? Oh, I know we have those silly little definitions. Love is an itch you can't scratch. Love is a burning down in your heart. Uh, somebody said it wouldn't take anything but a dose of soda to cure that. And yet again, the whole story is God is love. The kind of love God has is the kind of love he should have brought in our hearts and that we ought to express one to the other. A selfless kind of love. A love that loves with no expectation of anything in return. Oh, how often we say, I'll love you if you love me, but if you don't love me, woe is you, boy. Oh, that's not the God kind of love at all. God's love is a self-giving love with no expectation of anything in return. Think in the high terms of the attributes of God. Omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, so forth. And yet all of the attributes of God are nothing more than expressions of what God is. And that is, He is love. For example, His omnipotence is but the arm of love. He reaches forth in power, loving us. The very omniscience of God is the medium through which God contemplates the object of His love. God in His wisdom just looks out and He loves because He is love. His wisdom is indeed seen as the scheme of his love. The offers of the gospel are the invitations of his love. The threatenings of his law are but the warnings of his love. It is as though God in a harsh voice through the law and its utterances are saying, Man, do thyself no harm. God, through even the law, the Ten Commandments, all of the other utterances of the commands of God. God is saying simply on those very harsh-seeming laws at times, don't do yourself any harm. I love you. I don't want you to experience judgment. And I don't want you to experience the, the, the awful result of sin. God, through His law, throws about us a fence of love that would endeavor to keep us from the very pit of destruction itself. So for God, 
asserts his love. Then let me say in the closing that the word and the term for God announces his purpose. The purpose that God has for you and me. The purpose has to do with his marred and scarred and ruined creation. Sin scarred man. It marred him. And yet God's love, as seen in the Bible, announces his very purpose. As we said before, God is a personal being and so must have, as a personal being, personal love. The scripture tells us that God cannot be satisfied with a garden. Oh yeah, he made a beautiful garden. But the scripture tells us that he said, let us make man in our image. God is capable of love. And he made man in his likeness and in his image that man may be able to respond to the love that God shows to him. There is nothing more devastating than unresponsive love. Have you ever loved somebody and yet that love is unresponsive? That's devastating. That's heartbreaking. That's empty. And yet God created man that he might respond to his love. Man came, according to the Bible, from the very hand of God. But man broke away from God. He went away. He strayed. He disobeyed God. Yet in spite of that, personally, I believe that even in spite of man's going away from God, there's still something that ties man back to God. There's something within the heart of man. He may be misguided by some false deity, by some false God, but there's something within man that ties him to the God who made him. According to the Bible, man is a sinner, not by birth a child of God, Though he is a creation, a creature of God, he is yet not a child of God. And in spite of that, there is something within man of an intuition that relates him to the God who made him. Let me tell you the story and I'm through. In the place that we now know as Ohio, in the early days of Ohio, it was a wilderness. A young husband and his wife journeyed into that Ohio wilderness and they went there into those dense woods to make and build a home for themselves. It was not very long after that that they were alone except for God and for the baby that God had graciously graciously placed in their hands. They struggled hard and worked hard trying to turn that wilderness and make it blossom. The baby, finally, two and a half years old. The father was out in the woods clearing the land, and the little two-and-a-half-year-old child, a little girl, heard the noise and the hacking of the father out there in the woods with the axe. But the little child, not being too well aware, followed instead of the sound of the axe, followed the echo of that axe as the father was working in the wilderness. The little child wandered far. As a result, being lost in the wilderness, a band of roving Indians came by and they found the little girl. They took the little girl, carried her far away to the Northwest Territory. For 14 and a half years, 
that wife and husband searched for their child. They tried in the meanwhile to live in that little cabin they had carved out in the wilderness of the wilderness of Ohio, of Ohio, but they couldn't stand it. Every time they'd go in the house, there's a little cradle. There's a little shuck doll, doll that the child had, had made by its father and mother. And, and they couldn't take it. And so they left that place they'd tried to carve out of the wilderness as a home for themselves. They hunted for days and days and months and years. They, and for 14 years, they sought for that child. One day, as they had wandered themselves into the north, northwest country, they heard from the trading post that there was a little girl that didn't look like an Indian. She was a white child. And the mother and father immediately went their way quickly down to the trading post. And when they got there, they remembered that there was a mole on the right shoulder of that little baby. And when they checked on this little girl. They found the mole on the, on the right shoulder. Other things indicated to them that this little girl was their child. As a result, uh, the father said to the, uh, to the young girl, you're my daughter. I know by all of these marks. But instead of responding uh, in a positive way, the little girl laughed in the father's face. She would not believe. And so the father went away and, and got the mother and brought that mother and she was convinced as well that that girl was their very daughter. And when she was convinced of that, she literally came to the daughter, uh, the little girl, and fell down at her feet and hugged the feet of the girl. And when she did, the little girl spit on her mother and cursed her. The mother sank to the ground in utter sorrow and despair and dismay. At last, almost beside herself, that mother down hugging the feet of that girl begun to sing. And she sung little songs like, Rockabye baby, Papa's pet. And she'd sing, Home sweet home. And as she sung those little songs, the girl's eyes gazed off into the distance and seemingly almost in a trance, she walked toward that, well, she came, bowed down to her mother and took her in her arms, for she had heard the voice of long ago. And the girl somehow inside realized, this is my mother calling to me. That was her tie to her mother. God created man long ago. Man was carried like a captive by Satan. And yet the voice of God speaks to every man's soul and every man's heart crying, Thou art mine. Thou art mine. I'm glad that one day he sang those songs to me and sang to me, Come home. You belong to me. I created you. And in that moment when I heard that voice inside, I could not help but say, Oh Lord, I'm yours and you're mine. Thank God for these two little words in John 3.16. For God. Where would you be if it were not for God? 
Could you claim to be on your way to heaven tonight if it were not for God? Could you have the home you have if it were not for God? Could you be blessed as you are if it were not for God? So loved this world that he gave. And that's what love's all about, folks. As you think of this time of Valentine and love, remember that love is giving. It's not receiving. It's not getting what you want, getting what you expect and what you think you deserve. Love is giving. And as we give in love, oh, what joy can become ours as a child of God. Let's pray together, please. Lord Jesus, I am literally overcome and overwhelmed with the, with the fact that you, the great God of creation, the creator of this earth, the God of the sea, the God of the sky, the great God that you are could ever love me. <laughs> I don't understand that, Lord. I never have understood it. But oh, I thank you that you love me. All my indifference, the wayward trends of my life, and yet you love us so much. Lord Jesus, help us to love you like we ought to. Forgive us for our, our unlovableness and forgive us for our unlovingness. Oh, God, may we dedicate and renew our vows with you tonight, never to leave, never to depart, but to stay with you, to walk with you, to love you in return. And, Lord, we can only love you because you first loved us. You made us in your image. You made us in your likeness, the God who is love. And Lord, you gave us the ability to respond to the love that you show to us. We think of the words of our Savior who said, If you love me, keep my commandments. Do what I say. May we show our love to you this week as we go from this place tonight. In Jesus' name, let's stand.